Good morning. My name is David Bowes. I'm the Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute. Uh, as you may be able to tell from my accent, my only qualification for being up here to make this introduction is that I am from Congressman Barr's home state of Kentucky. He is a graduate of the University of Kentucky Law School, where he was president of the Federalist Society. I am the first in my family not to attend UK and the first in my family not to be a lawyer. <laughs> However, I'm still a big UK fan. I spoke to a uh, Students for Liberty conference in Lexington about two years ago, two hours before Kentucky played in the Final Four. Um, so I gave my speech in a Final Four t-shirt, but I thought that would be a bit much for Cato. I recall when I was a kid, I used to see license plates that said, Kentucky, fast horses, beautiful women, smooth bourbon. Sometimes those adjectives got switched around. Um, <laughs> Congressman Barr's official bio mentions his support for two of those. <laughs> Before being elected to Congress in 2012, uh, Andy Barr served on the staff of Governor Ernest Fletcher and taught constitutional law at the University of Kentucky. Now in his third term, he is the chairman of the House Subcommittee on Monetary Policy and Trade, which explains his presence here today. Just last week, he introduced legislation to improve transparency and accountability at the Federal Reserve. Please welcome Representative Andy Barr. Thank you, David. Welcome. Thank you. Well, David, thank you for the kind introduction. And uh, I, uh, I know that you must have been uh, well-received if, if you were able to get some Kentuckians to visit with you two hours before a Final Four game. That, that is very impressive. Um, and, uh, you know, I really appreciate Cato inviting us here today. Uh, you know, according to uh, the University of Pennsylvania's ranking of think tanks, Cato stands among the most respected worldwide. And that is remarkable standing, uh, uh, especially considering that it reflects the reliable excellence of Cato's research and outreach programs. Over the last 35 years, Cato's Monetary Conference has more than earned its status as the place where serious thinkers and doers can develop, test, and market ideas for a stronger economic foundation. Uh, thank you, David, again, for the kind introduction and keeping monetary policy alive in this town. Uh, even when it wasn't cool. And congratulations also to Jim Dorn, who has been <clears throat> leading this program from the start. You and your fantastic staff have clearly knocked another one out of the park today. Thank you all for the invitation to join you. Today, we're turning the corner on monetary policy. We will soon have a new Federal Reserve chairman and could, in an important sense, have an entirely new board of governors before too long. We are excited about what this perspective change in personnel can bring in terms of a more reliable policy for American economic opportunities. But we're not, we are not waiting for these personnel changes in the Eccles building to further our own monetary policy changes on Capitol Hill. Effective personnel is very important. But even the best Fed governors cannot do right by our economy without political legal institutions that reliably support competitive trade wherever it might lie. Uh, earlier this week, we took an important step. We are improving the rules of the game for both our monetary policymakers and Congress. And we marked up three bills that will, one, 
reduce growth-killing uncertainty that continues to, to undercut the efficacy of our monetary policies. Two, sweep out the Fed's growth-killing balance sheet distortions. And three, stop relying on the Fed to spend money we do not have and start holding Congress accountable for America's credit policy. As the legislative process moves forward, we are motivated by the simple truth that if monetary policy does not work, then our economy cannot work. We know that some forms of monetary policy are clearly better than others. Throughout history, a number of commodities have served as money. Even stone wheels at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean have been respected as a legitimate exchange medium. And imagine the exchange medium that people might have used not too long ago where we sit today. Certain types of tobacco leaves could have served as money, and we would have spent more time and effort examining whether a particular leaf would reliably store value than we would enjoying that value. The high cost of transacting itself would have slowed or altogether stopped markets from helping goods and services, which include labor, find their most promising opportunities. Monetary policy can appear complicated, but unless we appreciate its foundational role in producing and delivering the economic opportunities that can and should readily, uh, readily available, should be readily available across our country, we will continue to fall short of our true potential. Our work on the committee is dedicated to making sure that does not happen. Two years ago, my colleague on the committee, Congressman Bill Heisinga of Michigan, spoke at this conference on the eve of our Fed Oversight Reform and Modernization Act, or FORM Act. Shortly thereafter, my colleagues and I passed that legislation through the full House of Representatives. And earlier this year, as part of the Financial Choice Act, we passed that legislation again. This time, we have a chance to move our legislation even further. Our goal now is not just to move monetary policy reform out of the House, but our goal is to move a solid set of monetary policy reforms uh, into the Senate and get it on President Trump's desk for his signature. We marked up three reforms that are strong on policy and capable of tr attracting both deep and broad support. We started by introducing a simple but important strategy to improve how the Fed communicates monetary policy. Better communication may sound boring, but it is key to reducing growth-killing policy uncertainty that, according to recent Fed research, creates a significant drag on our economy. Our legislation brings greater transparency to how monetary policy reacts to economic changes so that households and businesses have the information they need to make productive decisions. Today, our Federal Open Market Committee characterizes its conduct of monetary policy as, quote, data dependent, unquote. In doing so, however, it leaves households and businesses uncertain about what data matter and how they matter. By providing for the annual adoption of a monetary policy strategy um, involving the Fed's own choosing of that strategy, as well as a small set of policy reference rules, our legislation will reduce that uncertainty and provide a more reliable and stronger support for a dynamic economy. <clears throat> During our committee's last Humphrey Hawkins hearing, the Federal Reserve Chair uh, Janet Yellen expressed interest in working with our committee to codify a simple and effective framework for a more transparent and accountable monetary policy. 
By adopting the best proposals from both sides of the aisle, this framework promises to reliably support a stronger economy that works for everyone. Testifying before our Monetary Policy Subcommittee, Dr. Joseph Gagnon from the Peterson Institute shared the following observation, quote, <clears throat> the best strategy, <clears throat> excuse me, the best strategy is for the Fed to use various rules in assessing the stance of policy. Wherever it deviates noticeably from popular rules, the Fed should explain clearly why it is doing so. Our Monetary Policy Transparency and Accountability Act provides for exactly the type of framework that Dr. Gagnon and other highly regarded witnesses from both sides of the aisle have advocated during our extensive hearings. Moving this legislation into law is essential to minimize growth-killing uncertainty and reliably support the kind of economic dynamism that each of our diverse constituencies need to engage the opportunities that they deserve. <clears throat> In addition to reducing policy uncertainty through a more strategy-based monetary policy, we also address the Fed's distortionary balance sheet. We do so by establishing a Fed Treasury asset <clears throat> swap one that will transfer unconventional assets to the Treasury in exchange for an equally valued set of Treasury securities. Almost half of today's Federal Reserve balance sheet continues to reflect the Fed's emergency expedition into favoring some asset prices at the expense of others. Uh, this business of being in credit allocation is a concern to many of us on the committee. In addition to creating asset price distortions, Continuing this expedition increases threats to monetary policy independence. Our asset swap facility sets the ship straight, leaving the Fed with assets it needs to conduct monetary policy and requiring our government's fiscal principles to manage credit-related assets. I was just visiting with uh, uh, Dr. Plosser, and, and we quoted Dr. Plosser from a recent hearing where he talked about the distortions involved in credit allocation at the Fed. As I mentioned earlier, an efficient monetary policy helps goods and services <clears throat> readily find their most promising opportunities. To be sure, realizing this ideal is hard, even under favorable conditions. It becomes harder still when central banks step beyond their monetary policy role <clears throat> and into the political realm of favoring some credit prices over others, as the Fed has done, for example, by purchasing almost two trillion dollars of mortgage-backed securities during and after the financial crisis. Economists of different stripes have shared considerable concerns with our committee about this unfortunate development. Testifying as a minority witness before our Monetary Policy Subcommittee, MIT Professor Simon Johnson observed that, quote, we're all agreeing that monetary policy infrastructure is the responsibility of the fiscal authority, which is that Congress in the United States it is not the responsibility and should not become the responsibility of the Federal Reserve. So, our independence from Credit Policy Act promotes a more resilient financial system and a more productive allocation of credit. It provides for an orderly return of the Fed's balance sheet to, as Chair Yellen described, a primarily Treasury-only portfolio. Finally, our committee voted out a framework for congressional approval of emergency lending. <clears throat> Time and again, Americans have watched their Federal Reserve stretch its mandates beyond the breaking point, with the predictable result of, increasing, of, of increased financial fragility and decreased economic opportunity. Politicians and advocacy groups from both sides of the aisle agree 
that doing better requires a brighter line between conventional monetary policy and emergency credit policy. Following the introduction of Warren Bitter, the president and CEO of Better Markets warned that, quote, <clears throat> while the much smaller $700 billion TARP program received widespread scrutiny, the Fed's trillions in bailouts did not. In fact, the public and even its elected officials in Congress were mostly kept in the dark about these bailouts, and that was wrong. The Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act made some modest changes to limit the Fed's ability to bail out Wall Street in the future. But more needs to be done. If the taxpayers are to be protected and bailouts are to be limited, too big to fail is to be ended and market discipline is to apply to Wall Street like the rest of America's banks and businesses. By drawing a bright line of accountability between monetary and credit policy, our committee's Congressional Accountability for Emergency Lending Act provides for both a more productive monetary policy and less distortionary credit policy, and does so in a manner that Americans for Financial Reform characterize as aligning not only with the intent of Dodd-Frank, but with traditional principles of central bank lending that go back centuries. So we're moving forward, and we'd like your support. Ambitious for sure, our work uh, from this week has a few more miles to travel. We want it to get to the president's desk. We need it uh, to be taken up in the Senate. But we hope you will join, the, join us for this ride. Our detractors persist on the mantra that except for the Fed's great monetary distortion and adventures into discretionary monetary policy, our economy would have fallen into another Great Depression. According to them, we should be thanking the Fed, not reforming it. It is true that our economy is performing a little bit better than others, but better than many is the wrong metric for America. The right metric is whether we are performing as strongly as we can. And that fact, and the fact that our recovery has been considerably weaker than previous post-war recoveries tells us that we are not living up to our potential. So as we dig out of this hole, and by the way, we're excited about the fact that uh, we're voting on uh, tax cuts this afternoon. And I think that will contribute to a fiscal stimulus that will help us dig out of this hole. And the past two quarters of 3% growth are, are obviously a promising start. But our efforts will be more effective by understanding how we got here. We got here, unfortunately, by asking more from our monetary policy than it can possibly deliver. Some of you remember the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band Jefferson Starship. One of their hit songs includes the phrase, if you only believe in miracles, we'd get by. A catchy tune, for sure. But monetary policy should not rely on believing in miracles. Year after year, the oracles uh, of, of macro and monetary policy told us that the promises of unconventional policies are coming soon. And almost a decade out of the financial crisis, we are done waiting. The legislation we are moving through Congress builds on a foundation of local knowledge and individual incentives, fundamentals that have disappeared from too many of our policy discussions. The oracles of macro and money instead ap apologize that our best days are behind us. They tell us that their seat of the pants improvisational response to the Great Recession has nothing to do with an economy that only recently started showing signs of life over eight years after the recession. Today we enjoy the most remarkable technologies that humankind has known. But the oracles continue to tell us that our best ideas are behind us. <clears throat> they say that today's breakthroughs represent only marginal advances on historical uh, uh, breakthroughs and innovations. They tell us 
we should not expect to see innovations repeated. With his book on the rise and fall of economic growth, Northwestern University economist Robert Gordon has gained prominence for this neo-Malthusian outlook. According to the professor, America's remarkable economic boom from the 1870s to the 1940s, that was a one-off event. The professor is not alone in peddling such a dismal outlook. Spinning such yarns has become a thriving business for popular economists. Consider Lawrence Summers' reincarnation of the secular stagnation theory. According to former Harvard president and Treasury secretary, we quote, suffer from an imbalance resulting from an increasing propensity to save and a decreasing propensity to invest. As a consequence, the so-called natural rate of interest has fallen so low that conventional monetary policy has little, if any, room to work its Keynesian magic. Viewed through this lens, today's economic lethargy appears normal. According to the oracles, we should sing hallelujah for unconventional monetary policy and fiscal deficits as far as the eye can see. Except for these measures, they tell us, the new normal would have been even worse. But this emperor has no clothes. Today's oracles look to highly aggregated data for policy information, despite those data having little, if anything, to do with economic fundamentals. Boilerplate policy responses to economic anemia have thus become repeated exercises in goosing consumption, investment, or government spending. By ignoring that macro performance depends on micro decisions, models like those referenced by the oracles presume a supernatural capacity to optimally control the most complex of systems, our economy. But just as businesses cannot continually hide mismanagement behind fiscal engineering, governments cannot create true prosperity by opportunistically diverting scarce resources into politically favored national income accounts. So setting the ship straight, our colleagues on the committee in the House of Representatives, we have a better way. Consider what you would have lived through during what Professor Gordon characterizes as our golden age. You would have endured reconstruction following the Civil War, economic depressions, world wars, and major banking crises at a rate of more than one per decade. If people living under these conditions produced a remarkable <clears throat> economic expansion, then we surely can, can do better today. Instead of throwing up our hands in response to professor's, pr Professor Gordon's uh, treatise, instead of just giving up, as Professor Gordon suggests through his implausible hypothesis, we should get to the bottom of why we are not fulfilling our potential. And the answer lies with the missing policies for uh, a better economic uh, performance. And those that build on clearly defined property rights and institutions for competitive markets. The contrast between this framework for efficiency and those that motivate the above described orthodoxy could not be greater. Today's oracles of money and macro depend more on imagination than sound economic principles. They tell us that were it not for unsustainable deficits and unconventional mon monetary policies, our economy would be falling even further from its potential. But given that neither logic nor evidence stands on their side, perhaps they should embrace a strategy along the lines of that great sitcom Seinfeld. George Costanza, remember George Costanza? He said, uh, I should just do the opposite of what I've tried. And so uh, that is uh, the, 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 the untrue Keynesian instincts. Um, we should just do everything the opposite of those untrue Keynesian instincts like George Costanza suggested. 
A better, a better way builds from why we find ourselves in this unacceptable environment. The natural rate of interest, which enjoys frequent reference without reliable understanding, simply refers to the price of credit that emerges from competition between borrowers and savers. But when distortionary monetary and economic policies sow pessimism instead of promise, people curb investment and consumption to save more, and thus drive the natural rate towards zero. Loosely grounded policies that promised economic liftoff have left us grounded in an economic fog. Notice that these policies are effectively based on contradictory promises, that is, Clear price signals give households and businesses the information they need to make productive economic decisions in normal times, but in times of turbulence, we should stop believing in physics and start believing in animal spirits. In other words, we are supposed to believe that monetary distortions are a reliable antidote to economic distortions. Absurd. More, even more worrisome, others think we can, all fool, we can fool all of the people all of the time. These economists founded the QE Forever Caucus, and repent for our sins by pointing to an outsized balance sheet that lets the Fed make outsized Treasury remittances. Remarkably, the Fed continues to embrace this story, ignoring the risks inherent in, carrying, in, in a carry trade. If public companies played this game of non-disclosure, they would be getting regular calls from the SEC or worse. Pretend money will never cure our fiscal problems, and it cannot support the kind of economic dynamism that American households and businesses are fully capable of producing. Almost a decade out from the Great Recession, returning to a more reliable monetary policy is long overdue. Monetary policy distortions helped get us into the recession. More of the same will not bring a stronger recovery. Let us all remember the words of Milton Friedman who said that we are in danger of assigning to monetary policy a larger role that it can perform, in danger of asking it to accomplish tasks it cannot achieve, and as a result, in danger of preventing it from making the contribution that it is capable of making. Monetary policy needs to return to doing what it can and only what it can, and that is consistently producing an efficient medium of exchange so that real goods and services, which include labor, can freely engage in their most promising opportunities. The legislation that we have passed out of this committee uh, this week does just that, by reducing policy uncertainty, by facilitating an orderly exit from the distortionary Fed credit policies, and holding Congress to account for risking taxpayers' money through emergency loans. We look forward to working with you as we advance these bills through Congress, and introduce complementary and additional legislation in the not-too-distant future. Thank you for your kind welcome this, uh, this morning, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you, I know we're on a very tight schedule for you to get back, but we may have time for one or two questions. We have a gentleman right there. Uh, bring him a microphone. And then, it's okay, leave the <clears throat> microphone where it is and bring Bill a microphone. Uh, Bill Poole. Cato, I guess it's working. Um, Congressman, it, I was very pleased to hear you mention, although it was only in passing, the GSEs. Now, no monetary policy could have offset the damaging effects of federal housing policy. As 
Peter Wallison has amply documented at the time of the crisis about three quarters of the subprime and otherwise weak mortgages were obligations of the GSEs. It's time for Congress to wrap up the GSEs, eliminate them. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. It's very distressing that here we are eight years after the Great Recession and uh, the GSEs, Fannie and Freddie, are still in conservatorship. Uh, we passed out of our committee, of course, uh, uh, two Congresses ago, um, the PATH Act, uh, legislation that would have wound down uh, Fannie and Freddie and, and moved to a more sustainable housing finance model based on private capital. Uh, we want to do that uh, in this Congress. Uh, tax reform uh, will occupy our attention appropriately uh, for the remainder of 2017. Uh, but uh, we are moving towards, uh, with, the, with the assistance of Peter Wallace and, and other experts in this field, moving toward uh, a, a, a GSE reform in 2018. And I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, it's overdue. <clears throat> we need to do it. We need a more ha a sustainable, market-driven, private capital-driven uh, secondary mortgage market. Uh, and we need to do so because uh, the American taxpayers suffered the largest bailout in American history. Uh, and look, the GSEs were at the epicenter of the, of the crisis, and we need to fix that. Um, given what, Dennis Campbell, Metrics Money Management, um, given what you've said, why not uh, return the Fed to its original mission of maintaining price stability and get them out of the business of responding to employment and growth variables for which they've proven to be ineffective? Well, well, well stated, and, and many of my colleagues have uh, similar views. I do as well. Um, the, the dual mandate is um, the, the subject of a lot of reform efforts. There will be, uh, I anticipate, uh, a, an effort to uh, modify that dual mandate and, and, and return to that core mission of price stability. And as uh, Milton Friedman pointed out in, in my, the quote that I just delivered, you know, the, the chief contribution that monetary policy can make is price stability and the transmission of clear price signals. And if we, if we allow monetary policy to conflate fiscal policy and monetary policy, if we allow uh, the Fed to get into this business of credit allocation with its oversized balance sheet, QE, unconventional distortionary, uh, economics-free monetary policy, then yes, then it, it actually undermines that mission of transmitting clear price signals. So I agree with uh, the comment, the question. Uh, uh, my colleague Mia Love has legislation that she's already introduced uh, to actually uh, change that dual mandate to a, a single mandate of price stability. Uh, I anticipate that the committee will be taking up that legislation uh, down the road here. Thank you, Congressman. I think thank you're you. due back on the hill. Oh, thanks a lot. Well, I have so to go. For being here. I have to go cut your taxes. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.